0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. Good morning. I want to look at the word of God that comes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Would you follow along with me as we read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there. What's going on? So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You know, this is a pretty well-known passage of scripture. And on this particular occasion, Moses was having a very ordinary day. That's not the same as saying he was having a good day, though. And some of you can relate to this. For you, an ordinary day is not necessarily a good day. In the beginning of his life, Moses had an incredible stroke of luck and he was adopted into the household of Pharaoh, the leader of the greatest superpower in the world at that time. He grew up in the lap of luxury. He had everything good to eat, every fine piece of clothing to wear. He enjoyed privilege and luxury and everything that came with that position in life. But as with so many kids who are adopted, at some point they are told... You know why you might look a little different from us? is because we brought you into our home through adoption. And Moses found out that he was, by birth, a Hebrew. And then he realized that the Hebrews were the very people group that his own father had subjugated into slavery. And that started to get on his nerves a little bit. It started to bother him. And little by little, he began to notice acts of cruelty, abuses of power, deeds of injustice against the Hebrew people. And something in his inner Hebrew woke up and rose up. And one day, he just couldn't take it anymore. He saw an Egyptian foreman mistreating one of the slaves, and he just snapped. And he stepped into a situation that really at that time was not his business And he struck the foreman, and he killed him, and he rescued this Hebrew slave. Now, if you'd been in Moses' shoes, what would you expect as a reaction to what you'd done? Because he didn't get any gratitude or any recognition. Instead, the very Hebrew he had rescued turned against him and said, I don't need your help. Who told you to come down here and mess in our stuff? You are a son of privilege, a traitor to your people. And the very people he had rescued turned against him in resentment and bitterness. When his adoptive father found out what he'd done, that he had basically committed murder and he had nobody to back him up and advocate for him, he took off. What would any of us do? He took off and he ran off into the wilderness and that's where he'd been living for the last 40 years. Now, I don't know if any of you can relate, but for, for Moses, an ordinary day was a day filled with memories of everything he had lost. When this passage opens up, it says he was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. How many of you, your dream is that when you reach the prime of your life, you're taking care of somebody else's business. You don't have anything to your name. All you remember is everything you lost, everything you gave up. And that's the story of Moses' life. He's out in the middle of nowhere, tending another man's goats and sheep. And he has fresh memories of what life in the palace was like. What it felt like to be a young man full of rage and anger and conviction. Do something that would define the rest of his life, and now there is no future. He's stuck. Nobody knows his name. Nobody even knows where he is. He's literally in the middle of nowhere. In fact, that's what it says. On this very ordinary day, Moses is tending the flock, and he's just basically uh, had led them to the far side of the wilderness. That's biblical code for the middle of nowhere. I think that's a good statement for where Moses finds his whole life. And it's on a day like that, in a setting like that, that he has an encounter with God. That changes the rest of his life. I want to make two points this morning out of this text because this morning we're starting a short new series, and I don't know what we're going to name the series. I don't even think it matters. Let me explain to you what the point of the series is. Every Sunday, most of us come to this place and we do something very familiar. In fact, the things we do, we call them, you know, aggregately, we call this worship. We sing, we listen to sermons, we pray, and we call this worship, these acts that we do. But I wonder if at some point it has become so familiar, almost stale, so that we go through the motions of these things and we know that they are called worship, but that's not actually describing what's happening in our hearts. And so I want to shine the light of focus again on what we do, these familiar forms, these activities, which we call worship, and remind us that the reason we do these things in the name of drawing near to God is that these familiar acts have incredible significance. There is deep power in the things we do, but only if we ascribe to them the power and significance that they should have. If you're on autopilot going through the motions, it's very possible that week after week what you see on the surface is all you'll ever get and you'll go home wondering why I keep doing this so the first thing i want to point out it's kind of a, an unusual way to structure sermon but i want i want to make one point in two clauses and the first is if you look for god and the second point will be the end of that sentence okay if you look for god every sunday we drive out to this high school, and what happens here for most of us is familiar, it's predictable, it's ordinary. And the praise team praises, the preacher preaches, the ushers, the ush, I don't know what you call what the ushers do, but you look at this stuff that happens every week, and it's pretty much what you've seen most of your life growing up. You go from church to church, they might do it a little differently, a little fancier, a little more simply, but pretty much church is church everywhere. And it's easy to get lulled into this sort of numb, passive way of going through this, isn't it? I mean, I'll confess to you that if I weren't the pastor who has to work along with the team to put on the service, I think I would slip into the same kind of mindset from time to time. I go through seasons where I'm just like, another day at church, time to make the donuts. And it's in the midst of a day like this that it says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. God is so weird. I mean, of all the ways to get someone's attention, God's like, "Ah, what do I do this time? How about this? Let's set a bush on fire, but not really, and for sure he'll notice that. I mean, what a strange and interesting God we have that he finds these ways to get our attention. And and that's the first thing I want you to notice, is in the midst of a pretty despairing life, a, a life of ridiculous ordinariness compared to what he'd known, where he thought, this is pretty much my new normal. This is what life will be for me every single day until I die. And God interrupts that normalness, that ordinariness, and he gets Moses' attention. He's trying very hard to get Moses to look at him again because that's something Moses hadn't done in a very long time. Moses sees this, and listen, for 40 years he'd been a shepherd in the wilderness. That means Moses had seen brush fires before. It's not like he's walking around going, oh my gosh, there's actually a bush on fire. Been there, done that. If you tend sheep in the middle of the wilderness in a hot place like where he is, you're going to see bushes on fire. But for some reason, this one, because if you're an expert and you've seen lots of something, when there's any anomaly, you you tend to notice. And out of the peripheral vision... He goes, wait, but there's something a little unusual about this one. And he looks a little closer and he notices that though the bush appears to be on fire, it's not burning up. It's like the endless burning bush. It's on a repeating loop and it just keeps staying intact while the flames rage on. And so Moses says something. He makes perhaps the most important decision of his entire life. And that important decision was... I'm going to go over there and check this out. I'm going to walk over there and have a closer look. And that one decision would change completely the rest of his life. In fact, it was through that one decision that God took what was supposed to end up being a despairing, ordinary, suffocating life of normalcy, and he completely messed with Moses' junk that day. And it all began with a simple decision that as God tried to get his attention, Moses made the decision to give him his attention. God tried to get his attention, and Moses made the important decision to pay attention. That's important because I don't think that the reason some of us feel far from God is that God is apathetic, that God has stopped reaching after us, that God just doesn't care whether you like him or not, I don't think that's ever been the heart of God towards us. It matters a great deal to God how we are in relation to him. But I would counter that it doesn't always matter that much to us. And that's why I think from time to time, God attempts to rescue us from the total ordinariness of the life that we're living. You're just going From day to day, driving the same route to the same workplace, coming home to the same family, eating the same food, and at some point, you check out. You don't expect anything to change. You just go, I guess this is what they call life, and you bear down, and you endure it until the lights go out. And in the midst of this, God says, I did not put you on the earth for a life like that. Every person here was born so that in this short time we have on earth, we would do something significant that would touch other people and bring glory to God. There is no other reason you were born but to know God and do something significant before you die. Nobody was created to just stare at the wall till the lights go out. And if that's what you have accepted, you are selling yourself so short compared to the reason that God made you and me. Now maybe the wall you're staring at has very fancy wallpaper and the lights you're waiting to go out are very nice lights, but none of that makes a difference. God did not create you just to mark time. But here's what I love about the way God reaches after us. Okay, Do you notice that God tries to get Moses' attention, but he doesn't mug Moses. He doesn't assault him. He doesn't go, I'm going to sit on your chest until you look at me, you little punk. I have actually done that to my kids. I haven't sat on their chest, but I've had to actually grab their faces and go, Daddy's talking. Look at me. Because I notice I'm talking to them. They're just like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I I guess I realize how I make Jeannie feel because she's always talking to me, and I'm saying yes to stuff. Even this morning there was this whole intricate arrangement of who's driving, which kids where, and she told me all that yesterday, but I guess I was just in that mode. Uh Uh-huh, sure, yeah. And then this morning, I was totally caught off guard by the schedule, and Jordan reminded me, Dad, I was standing right there. You looked right at mom and said, yeah. I'm like, I didn't? I think we get in that place all the time, even with God. But what I love about God is he doesn't grab our face and go, you will look at me. He says, oh, over here, over here. And it isn't until Moses decides, I will go over, because look what it says in verse 4. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, then God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. In other words, God whispers to get our attention, but he starts to shout when we begin to listen. I don't think God is in the business of jumping people, sitting on their chest, and going, You will pay attention to me. It's just not the way he operates. Because I think God is wanting to see whether we are interested in him or not. I'm not saying he's insecure or coy. He's not a little girl going, I'm gonna play hard to get. He's not doing that. But what God is saying is, Why would I waste my breath? on people who don't even want to come and check out a bush that's on fire but doesn't get consumed. Now notice the sign that God uses to get Moses' attention isn't just a little thing that could easily be ignored. It wasn't just a bush on fire. It was something that Moses, after 40 years in the same plain scenery, says, now that's a strange sight. It's enough to get you to look. But unless you really want to find out, you could just go, wow, that was weird, and then keep going. I think from time to time, God is reaching after us. And you know what I'm talking about because from time to time, you felt it. Maybe you've even actively resisted it because you were afraid of the consequences of letting go. But from time to time, each one of us has felt something that's like the pull of God on our innermost being. Maybe it's a day of just profound claustrophobia at your life. You, you, you say, I can't go another day just living like this. You have that Popeye moment, as Bill Hybels often points out. I, I, <laughs> I stood all I can stands and I can't stands no more. And you just feel it. You're like, I know we've heard this in sermons and all, but today I just feel it so strongly. I will not live like this another day. I hate this. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe you come walking into a place and you hear a song, and for some reason, the song makes you want to cry. And you, Why am I crying? This is so stupid. Why am I so emotional? Why is this getting to me? Maybe, even on the off chance that you've managed to stay awake to the whole thing, a sermon preached in this room started to mess with you. Is that possible? Encourage your pastor a little bit. Just even fake it. Lie to me. Once in a while, something happened. You're like, oh, dude, that's really messing with my heart. It doesn't feel like I'm just writing notes. and Yes, that's true. You couldn't even write anymore. You just stopped, and you felt like God was just talking to you. This was for you. If you've ever felt any of those kinds of things, you understand that you've had burning bush moments where God is going, hey, yo, over here, look. I'm doing something. and I know you noticed me. I know you heard. But the question is, will you come closer for another look? Will you actively investigate the tremors the signs that God wants to invade your life again. Will you come closer for another look? God will whisper, but he will shout when he realizes you're listening. So I want to ask you, as you come every Sunday to church, here or anywhere else, if you're visiting, what are you listening for? What are you looking at? Who are you paying attention to? And who have you come to meet each Sunday that you walk into this place? Because the amazing thing is, when God is at work, he can rock your life in the most unexpected and ordinary place. Even high school cafeteria. I never in my life thought I'd spend so much time in a high school cafeteria when I grew up. Well, here's the other half of that sentence. If you will look for God, if you will not just come by habit to this place and go through the motions, but if at some point you will put your foot on the ground and say, if God wants to get my attention, I will give it to him. It's not like you're just going to get punched in the face by something when you come here. God wants to know, are you going to look for me? Because if you do, you will have an encounter with God. Maybe not today, maybe not next week, but the people who are looking for God will not fail to find him because God doesn't hide from his people. He's not playing games with us where he's making it tough to see him, tough to grasp him. He want, he's the God who reveals himself. He's the one showing us who he is, telling us what his name is. We are often the ones running into the shadows. And so, if you will actively look for God, here's the good news you can actually have a life altering encounter with God, and there's a very high likelihood for those of you who call Harvest home that it will be in this room that you will have some of the most significant moments of your spiritual life. Now, here's what's interesting. God sets a bush on fire. Moses notices, he starts walking over, and then God starts talking out of the bush. So Moses is like, I think I'm on the right track. And as he's walking towards it, God does an interesting thing. He goes, hey, don't come any closer. That's when some of you guys are like, I know know a girl who's like that. Come here. Hey, stop. Come here. You know, does it sound like a fickle God? Like, hey, come on over here. Stop. The reason God stops him is he said, look, I know you see me. I know you know that I'm trying to get into your life. But you be careful from the first moment of this encounter, you be careful to remember who it is you're walking towards. You be careful to remember who it is we're walking towards. So funny, when I preach at youth retreats, because I look so young and supple and energetic, some of the kids don't always know who I am. They don't. They know they don't know my face, but they don't realize I'm the speaker. And then one kid you know, does that and goes, that's the speaker. And the kids were standing around like this. What's up? Hey, what's your name? All of a sudden, they go, oh, you go, oh. <laughs> Like that, Right. Their posture changes because at that moment, there's this immediate recognition of who this guy I don't know why they bow. In fact, like the Asian in them just comes out, and they can't help themselves. But I, I think it's something like that. Like, God is saying, you're walking towards me, and that's good, but don't walk towards me like, what's up, yo, Yahweh, high five, up, down low, you know. It's not like that. He wants to be our friend but I think one of the things that sets us back spiritually is the, the triviality with which we sometimes approach God, that there is this intimacy that our generation is comfortable with when we think about God, but that we're losing the grasp on this idea of holy fear, that the person who is inviting us near is God of the universe. And so he says to Moses, stop in your tracks, and take off your shoes. Now, unless you're, you've are you grown up in an Asian home, that sounds like a really weird thing all of a sudden to say. But being Asian, I get it right away. I, oh, yeah, you've got to take off your shoes. We always take off our shoes when we come home. And I, I don't know why we do it because, we, in general, the, the developed world is pretty clean. The only time I really know I've got to take off my shoes is when I've been in the gas station bathroom. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm going to definitely take off my shoes because if you've ever walked around in the developing world, you know that you probably have a good chance of stepping in something not so clean. I remember when I was in a, I won't mention the country, but I was in a developing nation. And I was like, I'm walking along the road with somebody going, well, how come there is this weird depression right here in the middle of the road by the side? This is where the curb would be in America. And he goes, brother, you're walking in the sewer. It's not an underground sewage system. It's just a trough down which the urine and the poop just floats down from the house to house and eventually makes its way downhill when the rains come and collects somewhere. And I was like, oh, thanks for telling me earlier. And I just wondered several hundred yards back that I'd been walking down this trough what I'd stepped in. And because the ancient world was very much like that, no paved streets, everything was dusty at the best and full of poop and other things at the worst. When you walked into someone's house, it was considered a show of disrespect to track all that into their house. You're basically saying the inside of your house is like the outside of everything. I don't care. And so any reasonable house guest would take off their shoes as a show of respect. The priests accorded God the same respect. Whenever they entered the temple, they not only took off their shoes, there was an entire ceremonial washing as if to say, when you enter God's presence, there ought to be at least some kind of preparation before you go to meet God. And that's not such a strange concept to us, is it? Before we meet lots of people, we know there are certain things we do. Everybody changes their underwear before they go to the doctor for an exam. You don't, you don't want the doctor to be like, okay, we need to do an exam. A nice skid mark. Thank you. Right? We prepare ourselves before we meet lots of people. And, and I think what God is reminding Moses is don't just walk up to me. Acknowledge exactly who I am and what you're walking into. Now, here's the problem I have with all this. I would get it if he was about to walk into a house or into a temple, but he's still in the middle of nowhere. He's walking towards a bush outside in the public. And yet God says, hold up. Take off your shoes because you're about to come into my house. The ground you're stepping on is now holy ground. And I'm sure Moses was like, i walked past this bush like a thousand times. My goats have pooped right there. What makes it holy now? Well, to help you understand, maybe I can give you an illustration. December of 2008, Scarlett Johansson was Jay Leno's guest on The Tonight Show. She had a little cold, a little sniffle, and so she, she was clearly congested, and Jay Leno handed her a Kleenex, and she blew her nose pretty good. It's a wet one, you know, just you could feel it. And then he holds out an open Ziploc bag, and she drops the tissue in. He seals it. And they put that used tissue up for auction on eBay. And some completely whacked out human being bought it for (laughs) $5,300. Now, obviously, Scarlett Johansson <clears throat> is not blowing snot into Kleenex to make extra money on the side. It was to benefit U.S. Harvest. It's a hunger of charity. She designated it. was all kind of prearranged. But what boggles my mind is that someone would pay 5300 for another human being's used tissue. Now, if I blew my nose into a tissue and put it up for eBay, how much would it get? Some of you might bid a dollar just to make me feel better. But do you understand that a mucus-filled piece of tissue has no inherent value unless it contains the last sample for a vital specimen by which we will cure the world? Right? Unless it's that, unless it has the cure for Ebola in it, it has no value of its own. Its entire value was whose snot was on the rag. And I guess Scarlett Johansson's snot is worth infinitely more than mine. It's not inherent value, but ascribed value, value by association. And that's exactly what's going on here. This patch of land and that particular bush had no significance before. It was just another bush and just another patch of land. In fact, Horeb, the mountain where this, this meeting is taking place, The other name for that mountain, do you know what it is? Sinai. Perhaps the holiest site physically, geographically, in all of Jewish history. Started out as just another mountain. But it became significant because of what God did in the lives of his people there. There is no power to the place itself, but it takes on mythical power Because God gives it value through what He does in that place. I think that's incredibly important for us to hear at Harvest because we meet every Sunday in a high school cafeteria. And it's easy to think, well, what's the big deal? Tomorrow, a bunch of kids will be throwing food at each other in the same room. It's not a special place, but in fact, every Sunday for us, this room, this building, becomes to us the house of God. It becomes holy ground. Thank you, Johnny. If that's true, and we acknowledge it, there are a couple implications of that realization for us. At the most superficial level, I think that if this is really the house of God for us, at the most basic 101 level, we ought to show this place respect as though we are guests in the house of someone we hold in high esteem. I decided not to do it, but last Sunday after service, I walked around with my iPhone and took pictures of all the coffee cups, bulletins, seed stickers, miscellaneous garbage that was just basically left on the floor. In fact, I was going to blur out the names of the seed stickers because your names are right there on there. Like, I threw this away on the floor. Please identify me in the future. In order to protect the dignity of those who have littered, I did not show those pictures. But here's basically what I'm saying, because I don't know that I'm going to get another chance in a sermon to say this in a relevant way. It's nobody else's job to clean up after us in this place. One of the most basic ways we show respect is to conduct ourselves as though we are guests in the home of another person we respect. Now that's That's hardly the main point. I'm just going to throw it in there because I think it's a little public service announcement. Please clean up after yourselves. Seriously. When you leave that on the floor, what is thinking is a fairy going to come and fly it to the garbage can? It's a simple thing. Let's treat this place with respect. Amen? And that's just the first blush. But I think there's a deeper significance that if we really understand that this is holy ground, and while it looks to our eyes like a high school cafeteria, God is at work meeting people in this place. If that's real, and you are right in the center of that, something will happen to you in the middle of this ordinary room. While everyone else is just singing, just listening, just fighting the drowsiness just checking out that other single person across the room. I don't know what was going on in our minds. While everyone else is in the natural, if you understand that this is the house of God, holy ground, and you're caught up in it, something will be happening to you that will be invisible to everyone else. In the middle of this place, your heart will be shaking the same way Moses' heart was shaking when God introduced himself and said, I am the God your forefathers keep talking about. I know that as the Hebrews groaned under the weight of slavery, they probably talked a lot less about me because they wondered where I'd gone to. But I'm still alive and well, and I want you to know who I am, Moses. And as Moses, walking through a very familiar land, going through a very familiar activity, encounters God, the reaction he has is impossible to hide. He hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, that's not the kind of terror you feel when you see a slasher movie and you can't look at the screen. It's not that kind of fear. What it's really saying is, at this moment, Moses' heart is shaking because he realizes this is not just church or shepherding or a field. Something is happening, and I'm not sure what it is, but I am in the presence of someone who makes me intensely uncomfortable who makes me look at everything and everyone a little differently. I can't be myself right now because I am with somebody who is shaking me to the very root of who I am. <clears throat> this is important because very shortly after this, Moses will be asked by God. I don't know if asked is the right word. He's made by God to do something extraordinarily difficult. He takes a guy with a speech impediment. I think most scholars agree, Moses probably had a stutter or something. The words just would not come out. He was a terrible speaker. And God says to Moses, you're going to be my voice. And the person you're going to talk to on my behalf is the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth. And you're going to get in his face and say, hey, you got to stop using the Hebrews as your slaves. We're going to leave now that's his mission it sounds to me like something impossible it's the same way i have often felt when i've traveled to the developing world seen the level of corruption the level of poverty of illiteracy of violence And you just get overwhelmed when you talk just about some of the problems we have in America with consumer debt, with broken marriages. When I meet a couple who basically says, we're done. I can't even look at them without wanting to hit that person. I have no love left in my being for them. And I step into a situation like that, and I wish I could wave a magic wand and say, please, fairy dust, remember your wedding day. Go back to that place when you liked each other. I wish I could, but I stare at that couple so filled with hate. I think what are we supposed to do? I mean, where do you start even on something like that? It's too heavy, it's too big and it beats me up and I want to shrink. And when I am in the natural and I encounter these god-sized problems like two people whose hearts have turned off for each other. Or things like Ebola. I mean, how many of you are really stressed out about flying? People keep spreading rumors about somebody in Chicago just died on an airplane from Ebola. I don't know how how much of this is rumor-mongering, but you hear about things like that, and you think, if there is a global pandemic, we are toast. What are we going to do if Ebola gets loose? Do you realize I used to study virology at the CDC? My life's goal was to get into the maximum containment lab where Ebola was stored behind locked doors with guards with M16s. That's how dangerous Ebola is. And now it's outside in the world. And when you hear all of these doom and gloom scenarios about the coming economic collapse, about all these other things, at some point, don't you just want to scream and go, I don't understand what we're supposed to do. And imagine if one day in the quiet night, God said, you do something about it. You do something about it. I think Pastor Jared could attest to this, all the other pastors in the room. Sometimes we're doing ministry and we think, do you know what we're up against? Netflix streaming, binge watching, clubs, alcohol, drugs, illicit sex. There's so many things we're up against that want people's hearts. And every Sunday we've got to stand up here and make much of God in a world that wants to kick God in the face. And at some point, you go, can we keep doing this? Isn't it too much? God knew that what he was about to ask of Moses, and in the same way, what he is about to ask of many of us is just too big for us. With our best imagination, we can't see how it's going to happen. And God says, it begins here in this place on holy ground. As you don't look at the problem or the burden ahead of you, but you look at me. And remember, if I tell you to do it, it can be done. It seems like too big a problem out there. But in front of this burning bush, don't you feel a little different, Moses? Don't you feel at this moment like just maybe? It could happen. Let me close by sharing with you a testimony of this past week. This week, I got invited to two fundraising banquets, back-to-back, Thursday night and Friday night. Now, with the schedule I have, with the limited budget I have, I'm going to be very transparent with you. An invitation to a fundraising banquet is not like my favorite way to spend an evening. Oh, good, another reminder of just how little money I have to give to good causes. Another long evening sitting at a table, listening to someone just passionate about a cause that I don't really know about, and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, in the fleshly level, that's how I feel. And listen, I have written a lot of checks to a lot of ministries in my time, and many of those checks were written in this disconnected feeling of doing the right thing. I recognize the problem, the person telling me about it. it was a friend of mine. I wanted to make sure they knew I was with them, so I wrote a check. But when I got those invitations to go to these events, Thursday night, John and Paddley invited me to Minister justice. Friday night, Mike and Silva Caruvala invited us to the Refuge for Women event. And in both of those, if I'm very honest, I, would, I was going to say in my heart, my nights at home with my family are so rare, I'd rather just write a check and, off. and it would have been very easy for me to just send a little email to say, oh, it's not a good night. Wide open to my calendar, Richard, it's not a good night. And they would be like, oh, we totally understand. And you just move on. Simple, right? You've all done it, haven't you? Haven't you all said no to invitations that you could have said yes to, but you'd just rather stay home and watch Thursday night football? And I've been there. But I felt this really strange conviction for both of these that I'm supposed to be in that room. I can't explain it, but I could not. I was powerless to say no. So I went, and I did what I think Moses did. I didn't realize that was happening because I'm writing the sermon. I didn't make the connection until last night. Oh, my gosh. I think that happened in my week. I took another look. Let me tell you what happened when I went to these two things ministries that I'd only heard about in the periphery because people in my life were passionate about them. Those ministries suddenly came alive. And more than that, I don't know how to explain it to you, but at both of those banquets, my heart was shaking. It was shaking far in excess of the presentation being given. Does that make sense to you? Like, it was a good presentation, don't get me wrong, okay? The presentations were good, the ministries were phenomenal, but what was happening inside of me far exceeded what was planned by the organizers in the presentations themselves. Something was going on, and this has happened now three times in the last year. You know, I've sat at a lot of fundraising banquets, but in the last year, GRIP and these two events, God's messing with me. In fact, I might have shared here at the GRIP event, I got so moved I was crying. I thought my job was to invite some of the rich folks from our church and get them to give. I would host a table, done. God jacked me up that night, and I wrote a check that almost ruined my marriage. Okay? I mean, it was irresponsibly big, given our budget. But I think that happens when your heart is being shaken in the presence of God. You can't even do math anymore. You just, all you know is, This is so important to the heart of God, and I can't believe there was a day when I didn't care about it. I can't just ignore it anymore. It bothers me so much because I think it bothers God, and I walked away from these two events this week so frustrated that I'm not wealthy. Sometimes you just have those days where I'm like, God, why do you give money to the guy who spends a million dollars importing Italian tiles for his hot tub? Why does that guy get a million dollars? And why is it so hard for me to write a $100 check and that guy gets a million dollars? I was so frustrated because I saw it. I'm right there. and I think, God, please release the floodgates and do something here. And I think that's what happens when we go to an ordinary place and it becomes holy ground and God meets us and starts to shake us. Have you been there before in your life? You know what I'm talking about, right? And maybe it's been a long time since you felt that way at church. Can I invite you to think again about what happens here every Sunday? I'm not talking about the quality of preaching, the quality of the singing. What I'm saying is even if we do it as sloppily as we can, if you come looking for God every Sunday, at some point in this high school cafeteria, you're going to have an encounter with God. For some of us, as our hearts are shaking, he's going to whisper into our ears, that thing that seems impossible for you, you're going to do something about that. And right now, in my presence, do you believe that that's true? That you can climb that mountain, that what seems impossible for you to imagine is possible for me. Those are the kind of moments we desperately need to have if we're going to keep walking with Jesus. Amen. And I want to ask you every Sunday to spend more time in the morning preparing your heart than your hair. Take some time before you come here to acknowledge who you're coming to meet so that you don't go home just having been there and done that again. Come expecting to see a burning bush. And God will meet you that way, I promise. Let's pray together. I think at the heart of this message is simply an invitation to think again about the things that are so familiar and ordinary and even powerless in your life. Maybe you keep coming to church simply driven by a sense of habit or duty, and it's not entirely without value. You will hear some things, you will say some things. It's part of what keeps your life together. But what if the value you get every Sunday is so far below what you could be having? What if instead of saying, that was pretty good, that was funny, that was interesting, what if God wants to shake your heart? What if there's a dark cloud looming on your horizon? Something so huge, so difficult that it defeats you every time you think about it? What if you walk into church even this morning thinking, I don't know if I could do it another day. If I can go on lying, pretending, pressing on. And the idea of actually restoring hope, of living fully feels like it's impossible. But what if... God wants to shake your heart. What if he wants to tell you that the thing you think is so impossible is like nothing for him? He's going to ask you to tackle it, and it's going to start with an encounter with a God who can. What if that's what you've been missing all these Sundays, and it's what God wants for you? I think a simple prayer we can pray as we respond is, God, give me that kind of an expectant heart. Teach me to stop lowering my expectations and start looking for you in my life. Can we just pray that together in your own way, in your own voice? Join me. Let's pray reaching after God who is reaching out for us. Let's pray.